Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. Good morning, Legacy. Hey, I like that. Hey, I'm excited this morning because it's summer, and if you know me, it's not because of the heat. I can't stand that part of it, but I am excited because it's summer in Psalms, which is kind of a tradition. See, Randy, you're on top today. You're on fire. Just keep it all morning. You and me, the rest of them, just a moment, they're sitting there. You and I are going to have a conversation today, okay? I love to come into Psalms during summer, and I love to sit under the Psalms because I've found that the Psalms, maybe more than than most places in the Bible, teach me how to live a life of faith in the middle of the mess of life. And, And I've talked to you about this before, that Eugene Peterson said that everything that a person can experience, everything a person can feel, everything that a person can say is brought into expression before God in the Psalms. And that's helpful for us because that means a lot of the things that we think and we feel, the things that fill our heads and our hearts in the middle of just the the heat of life and the mess of life, the psalmists bring words to it that we can come and learn from their words. There's like real hope and real anger and real joy and real anxiety. Like all of that is found voiced in the Psalms. And so one of the incredible things about studying the Psalms for us is learning how to take the things that we think and we feel about life and about ourselves and about God and learning how to speak to God honestly about those things. I don't know if you realize this, but a lot of times when we go to talk to God, we put on a veneer of holiness, like a a holy mask that we wear when we talk to God. Like how many of you, you are gathered with some people before church or maybe in someone's home before a big family meal or a group of friends eating dinner, and you're just having regular conversation, you're shooting the breeze, you're cracking jokes, maybe you're talking about your week, maybe you're complaining about your week, maybe you're gossiping, maybe you're, I mean, it's you're just talking. And then someone says, hey, I need you to pray. And then a switch flips immediately, and you're like, okay, 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 wait. get this right, get this right. Dear, most gracious and precious Heavenly Father above, Uh, We bestow greetings upon you, divine one, and we, (sighs) your sanctified saints are gathered here in Jesus' name, amen, right? And there's these and nows and all of these words that we're trying to come up to be, you know, in our words, in our etiquette, in our manners, acceptable in our speech before God. But when I read the Psalms and the prayers found in the Psalms, like all of the pretenses shattered, and talking with God gets a lot more honest, and it becomes a lot more natural. Um, Alistair Groves has said about the Psalms, the Psalms invite us to ask to be heard, to be helped, and to be held by God. And I love that. I think that's exactly what we need to have a life of faith in the middle of all of the mess that comes in real life. So do this. Grab your Bible and turn to Psalm chapter 2. It's where we'll start this summer, Psalm chapter 2. And what I want to do this morning is attempt to answer a question, a very big question that I think a lot of us have been asking more and more. It's been on our minds lately. It's the question that we watch the news, we hear something happen, we see something right in front of us, and we go, what in the world is going on here? What is wrong with people, right? Have you said that lately? And where is all of this taking us? I can't imagine where we're going to be five years from now or two years from now or next month. 
Well, Psalms 2 has an answer for that. It's, it's beautiful. Actually, the question comes first in Psalm 2, verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar? What is wrong with these people, right? Why are the peoples devising a vain thing? That's the question, and Psalm 2 is going to provide an answer. But before we get into it, I want you to see this. Psalm 1 and 2 are deeply, closely connected to each other. In fact, both in Jewish and Christian tradition, there's a, a time that we consider that Psalm 1 and 2 was one psalm, not two distinct psalms, but they were a unit together. Today, we see them as 1 and 2, and it's kind of a double-door entryway into the rest of the psalms. But if you look at them, you might, particularly if you know Psalm 1, think that that seems kind of odd, that it's not a fit. Because Psalm 1 reads like this, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like what? A tree firmly planted by waters, which yield its fruit in season, and its leaves do not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. It's wisdom literature, right? I mean, it's, it's beautiful, it's encouraging, it's about you as an individual knowing how to live life with the Lord and be blessed in this world. Psalm 2 then is about the nations and the uproar and the raging and what is God going to do about it and where are we going? And it's kind of prophetic literature. It would fit well with Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel. Psalm 1 talks about the righteous and the wicked and contrasts the two, and it bids us to choose a path. Psalm 2 says there are consequences to the choice that you make about that. Psalm 1 talks about God's authority over the individual, your life, but Psalm 2 talks about God's authority over the world, over the nations, the rulers, all of the peoples. And the pastor, H.B. Charles, commented that both of these truths are essential for confidence in God. He said, it's hard to trust that God's in control of the affairs of your life if you do not believe that he's in control of the unfolding and outworking of all of the affairs of history. But it's easy to believe that God's got your little life in his hands if you believe God's got the whole world in his hands, right? He's saying it better than me. But I think it's true, and I think it's right. When you look at these two stories, they begin to make sense together, Psalm 1 and 2. It's kind of like the philosopher who asked the question, how do we discover what am I to do? Well, if I'm going to answer the question, what do I do? I first have to answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part of? And Psalm 2 does that. Psalm 2 begins to give us a, a greater understanding of the big picture so that we can find some sense of self in the midst of the bigger story. Now, Psalm 2 is interesting, and it's very important. It's, it's alluded to or quoted at least 18 times in the New Testament. That's more than any other psalm. Uh, as to its authorship, Acts chapter 4 tells us specifically it was the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David who wrote Psalm 2. So David wrote this, but God was speaking, which means all of the authority of heaven lies behind these words that we're going to read as David seeks to explain the chaos and the disorder of every generation and every civilization. Okay, so question we're going to answer is, what in the world is going on? Verse 1, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Here's the answer, verse 2. The kings of the earth 
take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Another translation says, let us rip apart the chains that connect us to God. And this is like a gathering of all the world's leaders, but in some terms, we might think immediately of like official authoritarian leaders, but in some way, I would say this applies to every person who seeks to lead or, or take rule of their own life. And this describes people who are almost always divided on everything, everything that people can be divided on, on politics, on ethics, on sexuality, on, on what is true, what is not true, what's in style, what's out of style. But it says all of these people are gathered together, united in will, in taking a stand against God. And the, this phrase, taking their stand in verse 2, means they are preparing for battle. Though people all over the earth are, are divided over, I mean, almost everything, the one commonality we find is people all over the earth are taking their stand against God. They're in open rebellion against God and His Christ. That's something the world everywhere agrees on. And you don't have to look hard to see that that's accurate. Thousands of years after this was written, and it's true on a micro level and on a, a macro level. Ever since Genesis 3, we have been chafing at God's rule over us and doing absolutely everything that we can to pretend that He's not there and that we are ultimately in control of our own lives. And, and to answer why, uh, the, the ethics philosopher Mortimer Adler, uh, he was speaking of his own testimony and I think he, he shined a light on the reason why we chafe at God's rules so often. And he's speaking of his own life. He said, I, for me, I confess rejecting faith for most of my life because it would require a radical change in my way of life. It would require a basic alteration in my day-to-day -day choices as well as in the ultimate objectives and the ultimate things to be sought or hoped for. And I think it all boils down to that, wherever you live and in whatever time or day that you live in, whether you grew up in a, a nice, sweet family or a harsh, cruel environment, whether you grew up in this place on earth or that place on earth, I think it boils down to a fear that if, if I in any way accept Christ as my Lord, that means I will have to go places and do things that I simply do not want to do. And you can repeat this over and over again. All throughout history, the world is set in opposition towards God. We don't agree on almost anything, but we agree in this. We don't want to be ruled. Or in other words, what's wrong with the world? Well, the entire world is united in rebellion against God. That's what's wrong with the world. The entire world is united in rebellion against God. The Bible describes this rebellion as the basic sinful impulse of every human heart, and that is to be independent. We want to be independent from God. Even we who are sitting here with our Bibles in our laps and singing songs to Jesus, even we who, who are focused on Scripture now, even we, if I called out, God is good all the time, you would say, a few of you would say all the time God is good and the rest of you would look at them. But even, even we, with that in mind, if God specifically called us to something, 
to a change in our life because of Christ, if he called us to something in our financial life that should change the way we behave because of Christ, if he called us to something in our sex life to do or not do something, if he called us to to sacrifice in some way or to give up what we think are our unalienable rights, if he called us to stand up for something that's complicated or, or confusing or it's just uncomfortable, in that moment we would begin to push back against what God has called us to do. It might be subtle, it might be kind, it might be nice, it might be a good mannered rebellion, but we would begin to push back against the voice of God in our life. Or what we might do is we might then begin to search and seek for someone giving a counter-argument because there's plenty of people giving counter-arguments saying that maybe I don't have to do that thing that I read about in the Bible or that that I felt like the Holy Spirit was telling me, convicting me I should do. Well, this guy says it doesn't mean that. It means this. And so I agree with, with him. We might do it nicely. We might do it with good manners. But even we begin to rebel at at God's lordship in our lives. The, the frightening thing is that most people don't realize that's what they're doing. And the even more frightening thing is that I do it too. And that every sinful action in my life is, is me taking my stand against God and His anointed. I'm in rebellion. And that's what's wrong. Open rebellion or quiet, subversive, good-mannered rebellion. That's what's wrong with the world. It's the second question. In Psalm 2, if that's what's wrong in the world, what's God going to do about it? How does God respond to the world being in rebellion against him? Verse 4, he who sits in the heaven laughs. Huh. Huh. He who sits in heaven with the world mounted against him, he laughs. In other words, God is not shaking He is not phased. He is not intimidated. He is not sweating, trying to figure out what to do. One author commented, after you hear of the powerful people of the earth unified against God in verse 3, you need this picture of God laughing in verse 4 to get focused on the truth. The nations are standing. They're taking their stand in rebellion. What's God's posture? He's sitting as they're mounting up against him and rising up against him, he doesn't even feel like he has to get out of his seat to quell this. He's sitting, and he, he laughs. And this should give us great assurance, because if that God is for us, then who can be against us? The response that God gives at first, I think, is a lot like the response that I give occasionally on accident to my children. Uh, and if, if you're a parent, you, you've been there. If you're if, if you ever at one time in your life were a child, that should make sure I didn't cut anyone out, then this probably happened to you at some point. But when my children have the audacity to have a stony face stare with eyes piercing at me and begin to tell me what they are going to do, <laughs> or better, if they're going to look at me in this way and tell me what I am going to do. Sometimes I can't help myself. I just start laughing. I'm not as bad as Lindsay. Lindsay's really bad at it. And the worst (laughs) is if she and I make eye contact in that moment, because if we make eye contact, all is lost. There's no composure. Because of how silly it is to see these children think that they have the strength and the power to tell me what is and what isn't. 
And then what do I do? I begin to correct their thinking, right? Verse 5 and 6. God laughs, he scoffs, and then he will speak to them in his anger and he will terrify them in his fury saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Don't miss the tone of verse 4 when you're reading verse 5. Have you ever need to put, needed to put the fear of God in somebody? Where do you think that came from? <laughs> then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them. He's putting the fear of God in them. This is where it began. In his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Understand, God is not proposing or suggesting an alternative to insurrection. He has not begun negotiating with terrorists in this moment. The word for Lord here is Adonai, and it speaks to his supreme authority. We're talking about kings and rulers of nations. We're talking about the Lord over all has spoken, and with his powerful voice, he speaks an ominous and honest warning that basically amounts to enough is enough. You will not stand against my plans. Verse 6 tells us God's response to human chaos is Jesus. God's response to human chaos is, is Jesus. He has installed Jesus as king, and he's not asking. God's not pleading, oh, would you please consider my son as your king? If you love me, you will. It's not an option. He's not running for, for king office, right? He's not running for it. He is not optional as king, just like gravity is not optional for us to ignore if we so choose. Jesus is the king. Adonai has said so, and he may not have yet acted with righteous anger or with the completion of justice on this earth, but that doesn't mean that he can't or that he won't because he certainly will. And here's what Jesus says. Hear the voice of the king. Verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. Adonai has said to me, you are my son, and today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. We're going to do this, but let me turn to Revelation 12 real quick. It reminds me, some of you were here a couple of Christmases ago when we looked at the Christmas dragon. Do you remember that? How many of you put a Christmas dragon in your nativity? Make me proud, right? Revelation 12 is talking about Satan. There is a real and very old enemy of God who has from the very beginning sought to turn people away from the Lord, to, to teach us to buy into a lie that God is not real, that God does not love us or have the very best intentions in mind for us. And in Revelation 12, there's this prophecy about a woman, and the woman is Israel, and the woman is Mary, and this woman will give birth to a, a, a son who will come against Satan, and Satan is depicted as a dragon. And it says that she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to, listen to these words, to rule over all of the nations with a rod iron, just like in Psalm 2, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Make no mistake, the king in Psalm 2 is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And he comes with an iron rod to crush the work of the devil who seeks to steal and to kill and to destroy. 
Jesus speaks to the rebels here, and he makes clear who who he is. He says, I'm the king. I'm the king, first of all, because of who I am. I am the son of God. And I'm also king because of what I've done. And we find that that his kingship is inexplicably related to his resurrection. Look real quick at at Acts uh, chapter 13, verse 3. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the forefathers. God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It's explicitly stated here that Jesus is king because he is the son of God and because he is the one who has defeated death. He is the king. He rules over all. And understand that Jesus had the authority over all things before he resurrected. He had authority from the beginning. John 1 and Colossians 1 tell us that in the beginning that that it was through Jesus all things were made. So he had authority from the very beginnings of creation. But with his resurrection, who he is and his plan and the intention of God is reasserted in Christ in the resurrection. So Jesus makes clear here. I am the king because my father, who is Adonai, has said so. I am the king because I'm the one who has defeated death. And he makes clear what God's intention is. Verse 8, I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. The father has given to the son the ends of the earth. It all belongs to him. Those who cling to him now and those who are in open rebellion to him all belongs to King Jesus. And when you read verse 9 about a a rod iron and shattering like earthenware, it should either send shivers down your spine or fill you with confidence and encouragement when you walk into the mess of life. Whatever mess that you face this week, it should either send shivers down your spine or fill you with confidence and encouragement depending upon where you stand in relationship with Jesus. We find that God is not indifferent and we find that God is not politically correct. He's just honest here. None will stand against Jesus when his day of return comes. In Jesus' first coming, when he first incarnated and came to the earth, he was known by his meekness. Like he put aside power and glory and majesty. He restrained himself But this here shows us that in his second coming, there will be no mistake. Meek does not mean weak about Jesus. He is king. And there is a real day coming where he will physically return and rule. And not just in a spiritual sense like Jesus is ruling my heart, but in every sense, he will rule from nation to nation, from land to land and over all the seas and all of the peoples. And his rule will be completely just. He will make all things new and make all things right. And there will be no more tears and no more sickness and no more sadness. And his rule will be firm and the resistance will break against it and the rebellion will be put down and Jesus will not come and enter into a back and forth long-term war like a chess match where he's sitting back sweating and wringing his hands over how will I now make my next move against those who seek to defeat me? What will I do? It will come swiftly. It will come succinctly. It will be like, says an earthenware pot. It will be like dropping a clay pot and watching it shatter like that when he returns. Jesus is king. It will be simple. 
and his kingdom will never end because this entire world from coast to coast has been promised to a king. The king is Jesus. And only, only our prideful hearts will now continue to rebel against that. With that information in mind, it's only our pride that keeps fighting. It's only our pride that keeps saying, ah, let me see if there's a counter argument so that I don't have to go there or do that. So what do we do? That's the last question in Psalm 2. How do we respond? If the problem is we're united in rebellion against God, open or quiet, subversive, and kind, and God's response is, Jesus, what do we do? Verse 10, now the psalmist writes to all who'd hear, now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. You know, when you see a a warning like this, it has two sides. It has a threat and it has an opportunity. Do you see that? It's an invitation. He says, I want you to be wise. I, I want you to seek wisdom. Proverbs 9 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that wisdom is manifested in Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected for sinful hearts. I want you to seek and find wisdom. Verse 11, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed. What joy is there for all who take refuge in Him. There's a warning and an opportunity. Mercy is found. Mercy is found and surrender to Jesus. What joy, he says, joy is found in surrender to Jesus. How blessed are all blessing is found in surrender to Jesus. The story that we find ourselves in is a story in which there is a steady and faithful king that we have thought of too little, too lightly, not nearly enough, we've taken for granted. We And all in the world have said, he must decrease and I must increase. And we might not be so bold to say that out loud, but we say it in our hearts. We say it with our decisions. We say it when the Lord says this and we say, eh, that. When he says zig and we instead, we zag. You know, the story could have ended in verse 5. Think about that. What if the story ended with God laughing, scoffing, and then having righteous anger? But it didn't end that way. He sent his son. He sent his son to declare mercy. To declare days of peace are are coming. And so there's an invitation to us for for mercy and grace. And it's important that now, now his wrath soon may be kindled. That now we do homage to the son. We embrace the son. We cling to Christ. And not only we, but that we pray the nations would cling to Christ. The nations would come to him because what happens when they do? Does our ideal of morals come to fruition? I don't care about that. Does our culture and way of life become dominant? I don't care about that. What happens when the nations cling to Christ? How blessed, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. God's blessing reigns on the earth when people cling to Christ.
there's a, a word that I passed over in verse 6, and I want to end with it. Um, look at verse 6 one more time. It says, but as for me, I have installed my king upon, somebody say, Zion. And I don't know how many of you have studied, done Bible study around the word Zion, or you've speculated what Zion means. Uh, it's a word that we find quite a bit in the Bible. Um, in the Old Testament, it's there 152 times. In two books of the Old Testament, Isaiah is 46 times, and in uh, Psalms it's 38 times. It's an important word that we find here, and this summer, it's kind of the theme within the theme. Summer in Psalms, songs of Zion. So what I want to do is answer the question, what is Zion? So I think it's really important for us to understand what Zion is. In a biblical sense, in one way, one way to look at it, Zion is a geographic location. It's a citadel, it's a mountain, it's the city of Jerusalem, it's the place where God has planted his people and he dwells with them there, and because he dwells with them there, the place is blessed. Psalm 46 talks about God being in the midst of the city, and it will not be moved, and the rivers that flow out from the city will water the lands. And it's metaphor, because when you look at a topographical map, there aren't like these tons of rivers flowing out from the city to all the lands around them. You go, what do we mean? We mean the blessing of God will flow out from the place that God dwells with his people. So the idea of Zion is Zion is the place where God dwells, and because God dwells there, the place is blessed. But it's not simply a geographic location because God is not restricted to one location or one time. God has no restrictions. And so more than just a city or a citadel or a mountain, Zion is the people of God. God dwells with his people. And what we learn, in fact, in the New Testament is that it's not just the people of Jerusalem, but all who cling to Christ are Zion. Look at this. 1 Corinthians 3 says, do you not know, Christian, that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? 1 John 4, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Ephesians 3 talks about Christ dwelling in your heart by faith. First Peter 2 calls Christians living stones and says we're being built into a house for God. Second Timothy 1, Paul reminds Timothy, guard the Holy Spirit who dwells in you and the treasure which has been entrusted to you. So what is Zion? Zion is the place where God dwells and because God dwells there, that place is blessed. If you are the people of God and God dwells in you, you are a blessed, you are a blessed, you are a blessed people. The living God dwells with you. If you are in Christ, you are Zion. You're a Zioner. You're a Zionian. I don't, don't know how you're supposed to say that. Uh, anyone Lord of the Rings fans? Two of you. The rest of you, you can tune out for a minute. In, in the movie... Spoiler alert if you haven't seen a movie that came out 17 years ago. <laughs> in The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, the close of the, the trilogy, and we don't think about The Hobbit, that was awful, but in the close of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, there's a scene at the end where Aragon, he comes to take on what was his by birthright, the role of king. It was always his, but he hadn't been crowned. Peoples from all of the nations gather at the, at the kingdom for the coronation of this king. 
And when the crown is placed on his head, people from everywhere cheer in victory. And he begins to sing kind of a weird elfish song over them that I won't attempt to sing this morning. But before he sings over them, he says these words. This day does not belong to one man, but to all. Let us together rebuild this world that we may share in the days of peace. And I love it. I absolutely love that. And it reminds me, Zioners, of this. That our king, who has had authority since the beginning, will return and he'll wear his crown and people from every nation will gather and cheer victory and he will sing over us. But we know from Jesus' teaching, his heart is, I share my victory with you. This day doesn't belong to one man, but to all who are in me. And it's important because we shouldn't hear this message in isolation as only for the individual. It is enough for salvation. It's enough for salvation that you would bow before Jesus as king, that you would cling to him, that you would call him king, that you would wake up and stop trying to rule your own life. It's enough for salvation that that would be true, but this message isn't to be heard just for you sitting in your isolated life in your isolated seat. It's to be heard as the community of Zion that we would be awakened to life in Christ and we would walk in his light and we would announce his coronation that we together would be participants working to rebuild this world that we together would share in the days of his peace. So I encourage you, I challenge you to read Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 as a unit this week, to read them over and over again. Go to to Spotify or to the Streetlights app and listen to it read over you again and again on repeat. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, again and again, and understand the Lord has come for you, but he has come for this world, and he's returning again, and he will claim all that's his, and we, his people, Zion, will celebrate and rejoice. But until that day, the only thing we're here for is to announce his coming. Psalm 1 begins with the word blessed, and Psalm 2 ends with promised blessings for all who take refuge in him. Promise still stands. Let's pray. Jesus, I think it's possible we frequently take you for granted, think too little and too lightly of your role as king. We spiritualized it so often. Yeah, you know, you're the, you're the king. I wear your t-shirt. I'm on your team. But the humbly bow part, oof. In such subtle ways, quiet rebellion threatens to continue to rule our hearts. And it's that that keeps us in predicaments of anxiety and feelings of confusion and, and really and truly prevents us from walking in the fullness of life. What an interesting, what an interesting kingdom in which the ethic is we bow and give up and you give life like we could never have had if we hadn't bent a knee. I 
pray on this day for any here who have not come to the moment of surrender. Holy Spirit, would you do a work that I cannot and the band cannot and no friend or family member can for them, but a work that only you can do. Could you move through the real and true hurts and the hang-ups of their life to help them to see the truth that there is a God. His Son is King. And He came and He lived and He died and He resurrected because He loves them. And would you call them to yourself? And for the rest of us Zioners, would you embolden us to live lives worthy of Zion? worthy of the calling with which we've been called, that we would be marked by unity and the work of the Spirit through us, and that you would build beautiful things in preparation for the return of your Son, and that we, with eager hearts and minds, wouldn't do so because, oh, it's my obligation, but because we hunger and thirst for the day of your return, Jesus, and we believe in it, and we believe on it. And we're ready. Oh, oh, I'm more ready than I've ever been to share in the days of your peace. So come quickly and in the days until help us to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.